Appalachia, the word that evokes a whole passel of reactions. Everything from the beauty of a mountaintop to trailer parks, drugs, and about everything in between. The Appalachian Mountains are indeed the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air. They stretch from eastern Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The folks who live in these mountains have faced an unending number of tragic and just plain odd happenings that cry out for the telling. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and I was born and raised in these very mountains by a family who themselves were born, raised, and lived for generations in the heart of the Appalachian Mountains. Come with me and we'll take a look at some of the unending stories that come from within my beloved mountains. And we'll look through the eyes of an old Appalachian at some outside the area as well. Welcome to Season 4 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Howdy, my good friends. I hope you're doing well today. I think I finally got rid of most of this cold I had from playing around out in sub-zero weather. But thank you so much for stopping by. Now, you'd think that as many times as I've found a story that takes a cake, <clears throat> I wouldn't have any cake left to take. Well, apparently the lovely and gracious Mrs. Bentley keeps the cake coming, but I never get a chance to taste it because the story's just like this one we have today. Yep, you guessed it, it took the cake again. Of course, it did ice at first, which makes it that much worse. And to beat that, this one was probably one of them red velvet deals with the buttercream icing we all like, smeared all over it about an inch thick. Now, I guess I'll never know, but that's enough of that fluff stuff. So today we'll take a look at a woman blinded by what everybody around her called her nymphomania and was as dangerous as she was crazy. And once you hear the story, you'll realize, that, like I did, that that's actual insult to the people with a real mental illness, calling her crazy is anyway. But folks, come on in, brace yourselves, and let me tell you about one called the Peeler. Now, folks... Sheila K. Bailey was born on July 4, 1958, in Fort Payne, Alabama, as the Independence Day fireworks went off and the smell of barbecue just wafted all through the air. Now, if you ever heard of the band Alabama, and they may have come along before some of y'all's time, they were from Fort Payne, right in Hearst Town. And they were a real band that played real instruments and sang without auto-tune, which is something that pretty much don't exist anymore, but... That's beside the point. She is, <clears throat> they always do, true or not, but seems to be the norm with these crazy people. And I use crazy loosely with this one. They always come up with a, <clears throat> that, uh, you know, after they're caught, they always come up with it anyway. She claims that she had been physically and sexually abused when she was a young child, mostly at the hands of her father, who, according to her, was a stark raven, but 
<clears throat> functioning alcoholic. Now, all according to her, every single solitary day without fail, he would come home from work already half lit and tearing to the mother and children, throwing dishes and food everywhere. He would throw the entire contents of the refrigerator all over the house, then drink even more until he passed out on the floor in a puddle of his own piss. That's according to her. Sometimes blood if he happened to cut himself when he hit the ground on the broken dishes when he hit the floor. But by the time she was high school, she wanted to become a majorette in a high school band, but that was shot to hell by her mother, who just wasn't going to have it. And she thought that all of the majorettes were nothing but, as she put it, whores. So she dashed that dream on the rocks of life and left it laying there. But since uh, that didn't work, uh, um, being that she was still in need of some kind of missing attention, apparently, Sheila would predominantly claim to all the boys in school that her, uh, and folks, this is how she put it, she put it, she said that uh, her vajayjay was so small that it would probably hurt her bad to have sex. Now, for some reason or another, that seemed to drive all the boys in his class nuts. And, of course, she acted like she knew that and used it to her advantage to try to control her boyfriends at will. Now, she finally graduated from Fort Payne High School in 1976, now, she spent a few years thereafter running around with several young men who did indeed find out whether or not she was all cracked up to be because by their accounts, she was a flat-out nymphomaniac and a barking moonbat on top of it. Now, Sheila finally got married to poor John Baxter on New Year's Eve in 1981. Now, that'd be about the time that Alabama hit the charts with my homes in Alabama and feels so right right along about that time, so... I bet poor John can't even listen to either one of them songs this day. Now, she was then 23 and her husband was 19. It took all six weeks before John found out that the moon bat had been locking his little girl in the closet all day long while he was at work trying to earn a living for them all. Now, the marriage lasted just long enough for the whack-a-doodle to come out of her shell, and that's when John threw her to the curb. By Valentine's Day, the divorce was final. Thank God John Baxter had a pair and his baby came first. Sheila then moved to Chattanooga to be with husband number two. Ronnie Jennings was the poor man's name, and of course, it wasn't a happy marriage either. I guess her ways with her whatnot could only take her so far. Now, Ronnie said that, and I quote, that she was an unbalanced crazy bitch who was placed in a psych ward after a suicide attempt during their marriage. Now, he also said that Sheila didn't care about anybody. She just wanted everything her way, and she was going to beat somebody's ass if she didn't get it. That's what Ronnie said. Catherine Jennings, who was Ronnie's mom, said her son once stayed up all night, scared to death the maniac would kill him with a pair of scissors. The nutball was incredibly smart and incredibly dangerous, too. Now, Sheila wanted a divorce, but Ronnie refused. After all, she might be nuts, but... He wanted to work things out. Some people, you just can't reach, though, folks. That's when the lunatic supposedly tried to kill herself. By swallowing down a handful of who-knows-what-kind of pills, probably aspirin if they, if, if what I've read checks out. But then she climbed into her car and tore off down the road, wrapping the car around the tree like Tony Orlando's yellow ribbon, then spending eight days in a coma, yeah, which they induced her into, 
which she emerged from, saying that she had died and been sent back by the Almighty himself to be an avenging angel on pedophiles. Sometimes when one of these freaking nutballs gets a reboot like this, it takes the wacko out of them. But in this case, it just put it in high gear. That was enough to get the divorce papers signed by Ronnie, though. All he needed was to be married to an avenging angel after already sleeping with one eye open as it was, I reckon. Then in 1987, Sheila was now changing men like she changed her underwear. I reckon she ran out of local men because word does get around. So she moved to Epping, New Hampshire after answering a personal ad by one Dr. Bill Labar, who was a well-known chiropractor. She sent him a nudie shots of herself and close-ups of her, as she put it, ta-tas. So he was recently widowed, lonely, and pretty off, well off financially, too. So he had a million-dollar horse farm in Epping and a chiropractic office in the Hampton. Not the Hamptons, but in Hampton, New, New Hampshire. Thank God that the man had the good sense not to marry the slap nut, but screw that. As far as she was concerned, she took his name anyway. She also appointed herself Bob Bell's new office manager and ran his daughter off, who had managed the office for years. She ran her completely out. And after their romance finally hit the skid, she lived in the apartment above the office in Hampton, free of charge, and stared at her plum naked rear end right out the upstairs picture window passersby like a hawk of death now <clears throat> that is when she wasn't running to practice into the ground financially but in 1995 the crackpot married Wayne Ennis from Jamaica again the conniving overbearing wackadoodle just wouldn't let the marriage be a happy one complaints were filed in Hampton District Court where Sheila claimed that Wayne tried to force her in a car into a ditch and then punched her in the eye socket and kicked her in the gut. They divorced in 1996, but Sheila stayed in touch with him as she did with the good Dr. Labar, too. In fact, the white job had done more than stay in touch with Dr. Bill. She not only chased the poor man around with a gun, she asked for other, her other ex named Wayne Ennis to murder him so she could have his horse farm. Now, that was according to Dr. Bill's daughter, who went to court requesting a restraining order to keep the fruit loop away from her dad, which was granted for a whole year. Now, all the while she skated on, crushed on chasing him with a gun and soliciting murder, so I guess uh, uh, people just didn't look at it that way back then or something. I don't know what the vapor lock was on that deal, but nobody investigated any of it. If they did, I sure couldn't find it, folks, anywhere. The restraining order must have worked for a while because she then married poor James Beckett. In 1998, the lunatic was charged with second-degree assault for stabbing him in the head with, guess what? Yeah, a pair of scissors. Obviously, he made the mistake that Ronnie Jen Jennings didn't by falling asleep with the maniac sitting there staring a hole through him while holding a pair of scissors. Now, the police ended up calling it a lover's quarrel and dropped the whole thing before the blood was even dry on Mr. Brackett's head. Folks, then in two, the year 2000, the Grim Reaper cast his death net at the horse farm and caught Dr. Bill and pulled him over to the great unknown. 
poor old Bill just dropped over dead, leaving the Alabama maniac his entire estate. The Hampton office, two summers worth properties, a Portsmouth house, and the million-dollar, 115-acre horse farm in Epping. All together worth about $2 million back then. Now, how'd that happen, you ask? Well, I did too. Folks, I haven't got a clue. The very woman who had chased poor Bill with a gun, tried to get her ex to pop him in the head with whatever he could pick up, yeah, just, just to get her meat shuckers on his entire estate, then inherits his entire estate after he dropped dead out of the blue. <clears throat> There's nothing here to see, I guess, folks, right? Yes, there were rumors of poisoning. After all, she'd already stabbed a guy in the head with a pair of scissors just to what in the world does it take to get the police's attention up in them parts anyway, I'm wondering by this point. Dr. Bill's daughter was a <clears throat> so dadgum mad that she could chew fire. She was convinced that Sheila had wound up controlling everything Bill owned through some type of extortion or threats on his life and property, uh, to which Sheila said, prove it. So, yeah, I guess there wasn't any proof. But one thing's for sure, whatever happened, the moon bat was now rich, and folks, uh, that, that combination was pretty much dangerous as you can get. Sheila moved right directly into the horse farm and started right in with their favorite hobbies, well, which was badgering the holy living hell out of the local police department. The Epping Police Department had records of more than 100 calls from her about everything from potholes in her own private road to her unbearable neighbors to accusations of domestic violence. And she, <clears throat> she didn't just call the nutball facts, wrote letters, and showed up at the police station in person with about every body part she could have legally exposed hanging out. Now, it seemed like the woman had a pounding in their brain was to get the police officers to come out for a little slap and tickle every time she was feeling a good bit needy. Now, and by all accounts, she pretty well stayed that way 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 52 weeks a year, and yes, even on holidays. And every time they showed up, she would give them an eye full of the goods by answering the door without so much as a single stitch of clothing touching any part of her body whatsoever, anywhere, and fill both her ears full of how much she'd like to put a little stanky on her hang down, as she put it. Then, when she saw that that wouldn't work, they would be subjected to some kind of cycle babble BS until they had to leave and they couldn't get away fast enough to suit them. Now, she was a complete barking moon bat in the eyes of the police department who <clears throat> called her the peeler because she would peel off her clothes to the drop of a hat. Uh, they wouldn't even answer her calls without backup so that somebody could be there to attest to what actually happened when they showed up. Now the maniac had another hobby too. You know, you can't limit yourself to just one hobby. Uh, heck, your mind might just go stale if you did. But she enjoyed beating a complete unadulterated hell all the way out of James Brackett just for sport. Yes, that's the poor man she stabbed in the head with a pair of scissors. I guess that she was so good with the whoopee that, as far as he was concerned, it was worth the stitches and walking on razor's edge between life and death. In 2002... She chased the poor man all over the farm, trying to run his butt over with a, with a car, all the while laughing herself stupid as he tried to save his own self by diving into a ditch full of mud. Now, she wasn't even mad at him. She just thought it was funny. Then, for the love of Mike, she sticks 
he sticks his head up out of the mud hole laughing himself stupid too. So the peeler then peeled off all of her clothes and jumped in with him. Talk about getting down dirty. That, my good friends, where I come from, is called yodeling in the gully. Now, then in 2003, she took her fingernails and scratched ruts into his face, and then when he tried to run away, she took pot sets at him with her trusty 38. Again, James laughed it off as he dabbed the bullet graze wounds with tincture of methylate, which folks my age will appreciate, and he didn't press charges, of course. And being a worldly individual, folks, she still had another hobby, and it was sexual sadism. She didn't like living alone at the horse farm, and according to her neighbors, there was a constant procession of young men that came to work and lived there. And once they got a look at the aforementioned goods, succumbed to the wiles of her ways, and before you know it, they were acting like married folk in every room of the house, including the kitchen, apparently. I guess if you can't get a police officer, then you got to do what you got to do. I wonder if it ever occurred to her to order one of them young men a police costume. That way she could fake it. I guess faking it never works with these kind of wackadoodles anyway. The poor men would see <clears throat> would be seen beaten, bruised, and bloody on the way out. <laughs> it must have been like trying to make love to a thrashing machine while running full tilt. You might get your head in there, but, uh, well, you're going to draw back a freaking stump every time. At least two of them just up and disappeared altogether. I said at least two, and you'll see what I mean shortly. In the fall of 2005, Michael DeLogue, a 38-year-old man, disappeared. He was a developmentally disabled man that the lunatic met and befriended at a homeless shelter in 2004. I know. What was the wackadoodle doing at a homeless shelter? Well, <clears throat> that was the uh, wackadoodle's hunting grounds, folks. She would go in there and scantily clad with everything she had hanging out as far as the world could see, and she would, uh, everything hanging out legally she could get by with, anyway, and pick up the poor derelicts, hopefully finding the ones that needed a place to stay. Then she would offer them, work, a place to stay, and of course all the tree climbing, truth, tooth chipping, rafter shaking, sex they could handle, and then some. I would say that she probably skipped the part about the shooting, the ass beating, and the face scratching, and the dodge car, and the scissor stabbing that came with it. But Michael DeLogue was one of the poor guys that thought the offer sounded pretty good, so he was taken into to the pre-unadulterated hell to, for processing. And it wasn't long before Michael and Sheila spent most of their time doing drugs and studying sadistic material from what she called her wet library. For the love of Mike. Literally. Now, she, um, the beast started beating him, and, <clears throat> and it didn't matter who was watching. She would beat, kick, scratch, punch, and him, you know, right out in front of everybody and anybody. She just didn't give a steaming pile of crap. Who saw it? Michael's mom caught wind that something just wasn't right and tried taking Michael out of <clears throat> out of staying with the freaking nutball, but uh, he just wouldn't listen. Nutball finally <clears throat> or didn't appreciate that, the dadgum bit, so she put a stop to it. She had Michael make a video accusing his mother of allowing him to be sexually abused as a child. I'm starting to remember things about the past, Michael, with his face bruised, 
rut scratched in his face and ear half cut off, says in the video, you really messed me up. Then Michael wrote his mother an F-off letter, saying that he never wanted to see her again. Folks, go grab yourself a drink, fasten in tight, because this ain't near over yet. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now, Sheila, having the poor man right where she wanted him, she was mattering a sack full of wet tomcats, and she went on a sadistic tirade from hell on him. A neighbor saw Michael limping down the dirt road leading to Sheila's house in about a foot of snow with a split lip, blood pouring out of his head, and his ear hanging almost off. Now, as he passed by, he whispered, Sheila, to the neighbor. I reckon we all can figure out what happened to him. He had been stabbed in the head with a pair of scissors, apparently. Now, the only thing I can say is that she must have been so good with her wooing ways that if you threw her up in the air, she'd turn into sunshine. Now, turns out that when the neighbors had seen Michael, he was headed back to receive even more of the good care that the lunatic offered. Now, the next time the poor man was seen, he looked severely ill, malnourished, and thin as a rail with jaundiced up skin. <clears throat> then, poof, he was never seen again. Now, the wackadoodle was all by herself all over again, so she set up her, a phone line for singles, like you did back in, to try to find herself yet another poor man to take over where Michael left off. Now, yes, I'm old enough to remember seeing those ads on TV. I'm not sure how they work, but I would assume that to le swiping left and right over the phone uh, was probably done on the phone that hangs on the wall, and you probably had a big long cord attached to it like it always did, and you probably just punched buttons or something. Now, anyway, in February of 2006, the Waco met Kenneth County <clears throat> through the chat line, and uh, poor Kenny was 24 years old, had a mental capacity of a 12-year-old child. Now, <clears throat> he had a form of autism that made him easily manipulated. Now, the scantily clad peeler took her uh, now well-worn self over to meet up with the poor man on Valentine's Day of 2006, <clears throat> and right after getting a eye full of uh, <laughs> uh, this now well-worn goods, he moved in for the to the farmhouse with nothing but clothes on his back, which you can bet your hindquarters that they weren't on him long after they got there. But uh, he didn't even go back home to get any of his stuff. He just left it all and went home with the Alabama hose bag right on the spot. Now, after a while, his mother came worried about him too because he would come by and see her about every day and now all of a sudden nothing. She filed a two-missing-persons report and was worried sick. The first one was filed on February 24th, four days after a phone call from Kenny that bothered her. The police found him in, at the farmhouse in what they called good shape, and this gave her some comfort knowing that at least he was okay. And then on March 17, 2006, just 22 days later, Walmart employees saw Kenny unable to walk, riding a hover-around with slashes on his face and arms, 
two black eyes and a busted nose of the woman who said that she was his wife, leading him around in one of them self-propelled carts, you know, and stacking diesel fuel cans in his lap. Now, when asked what was going on, the half-naked peeler raised immortal hell, saying that he'd been hit by a car in the parking lot and she was going to sue somebody. Now, that's when they called the police. I bet when they got there, they saw who it was and wished they'd just stayed the hell home. But they saw the injured Kenny sitting in the wheelchair thing with a jaundiced-up skin, looking like he'd just <clears throat> tried to bathe a bobcat in a telephone booth, but <clears throat> and being very quiet and keeping his head down. He never made any contact and or looked at or spoke to anybody. The peeler did all the talking. Now, police were so concerned that they took a picture of him, which can be found online if you're so inclined. Somehow, after all this, the lunatic was able to convince them all that everything was okay, and by golly, they left. Now, just a few days later, the neighbors saw the peeler driving around the neighborhood asking anybody if they'd seen Kenny. She said that he was supposed to feed her farm animals, but had taken off on her. Then on the 23rd of March, Kenny's mother called the police and filed yet another missing persons report after she had a phone call with the warthog from hell saying that Kenny had left and returned home to Massachusetts. At 1 o'clock a.m. on March 24th, the wackadoodle called the police and played tapes for him. On it, she could be heard yelling at Kenny and accusing him of sexually abusing children, and Kenny can be heard agreeing with her and then vomiting. And then the maniac yelled at him to stop faking and that he'd passed out. And just as the tape ended, good Lord, folks, the police finally showed up to farm 6 o'clock p.m. the next day to check on Kenny's welfare. Now, wait just a dadgum minute. Let's add this up here. The police see a man looking like he'd just lost Mike Tyson sitting in a hover around a Walmart. Plus, the police received two missing persons reports on said man. Plus, the police then hear, <clears throat> hear said man, the said man being tortured on the phone. And plus, it takes them 17 hours to check on him. Now, I'm using the calculator to eliminate any mistakes here, and I just can't get it to add up. But, okay, <clears throat> are they actually dreading a trip to the farm that bad? Maybe that's what it is. Huh? Finally, the police get to the farmhouse and find nobody home. No half-naked Looney Tunes peeler anywhere. So, they took a small jaunt around the farm just to see what the heck was going on and found hundreds of free-range pet rabbits running all over Hell's Half Acre, a burnt mattress and a box spring still smoldering in the front yard, two yellow diesel cans that were now empty but smelling like diesel fuel, several piles of hay that were still on fire, and what appeared to be a human femur with meat still on it sticking out of a 55-gallon drum that was also smoldering. And that's about the time the peeler herself rolled up to the scene. Now, the police asked her what kind of bone that was burning in the barrel, to which she said that was either a rabbit or maybe a pedophile, and though they couldn't take the bone with them. And just as my drill sergeant used to say, Jesus H. Christ on a saltine cracker. Believe it or not, folks, they didn't and they left. Next day, they finally got a search warrant, which was only good for the yard. They showed up bright and early, and there stands the moon bat in her kitchen, naked, covered from head to toe in ashes and soot. 
holding a gun, stirring eggs in a frying pan. Now, the idiot proceeded to tell Lieutenant Wallace and Police Chief Dodge that she'd burned up a pedophile, and then she told him that Kenneth was in the bag, and police found the bag, and sure as you're born, there were human bones in it. Now, Lieutenant Wallace and Police Chief Dodge then asked the peeler to get dressed and go with them to the station to answer a few questions, and she agreed, as long as she could take her pet rabbit with her and hand it over the gun. Before getting to the police in the police car, Lieutenant Wallace asked a deadhead on a mop stick if she had any more weapons on her, and she flashed him her breast and started peeling off clothes. Until the good lieutenant had to stop her, she wouldn't have <clears throat> taken very every stitch of it off anyway. But uh, he had if he hadn't stopped her. But in the interview, she sat there and pet her rabbit, and she handed police a suicide note she had written just before the police came to search property. In the note, she claims that poor Kenneth was a pedophile and a drug addict, so, and she also said that Kenny threatened to kill himself and then left the farm. And for the love of Mike, after the interview was over, she and her rabbit bounced her, uh, well, her magnificent tatas right out the front door and went home. Uh, no, folks, why on earth would they let her go? Folks, I, <laughs> I'll be danged if I know, but... There's always a but, you know, on March 26th, the police came back with three more search warrants. And as we all know, they always come back, folks. For the next few days, the place was infested with cops collecting evidence, some of which was Michael DeLogue's clothing, a knife with blood all over it, and blood spattered all over the kitchen, the living room, the dining room, both bathrooms, and a bathtub on the walls, floors, and yes, even the ceilings. And every room of the house and of course there was human bones and teeth scattered all over the yard they also found older burn pits and blood splatter on it so old that it had layers of dust on top of it and uh, <clears throat> they found uh, the tips of uh, the toes of at least two other men that were never identified so either she'd killed at least two more that she'd chopped uh, chopped the toes off of, or maybe even bit the toes off of them during some lunatic perverted act, leaving the poor men hobbling around like orthetic geezers, I reckon, if they weren't dead. By March 28th, the peeler had flown the coop. She had $85,000 in cash, all stuffed in a Walmart bag, and was making a run for it up I-293 in Manchester. She finally hitched herself a ride with a poor man that, according to her, she paid for with a little slap and ticker, tickle. And also, according to her, the next day she made a shaky pudding with yet another man in, a, in Boston for another ride. Then, lo and behold, on March 31st, the police finally issued an arrest warrant for Sheila Labar, the peeler. And then, on April 2nd, an infomaniac was arrested in a Revere, Massachusetts Taco Bell as she sat there eating her seven-layer burrito combo with a Dr. Pepper. Of course, she, she had cut and dyed her hair and was <clears throat> using a different name, but her glazed donut-looking face was all over the a page of every newspaper and all over the local news as well, so it wasn't like she was hiding anything. She was pounced on and dragged back to Epping and thrown into the hot box for some serious questions as to what happened to poor Kenny. The screwball said that they were lovers and she'd renamed him Adam Olympian Labar. But after 
learning that he was a pedophile, and she hates pedophiles, she cut off the relationship. Then she and Adam Olympian Labar went to bed, because when she ends a relationship, she apparently still sleeps with him, but when she woke up, he was gone. She said that he was probably out abusing kids right now while they're wasting time talking to me. Now, she said that she burned the mattress because she had slept on it with a dirty, rotten pedophile. Then, folks, her story started morphing, like most wackadoodles do. She said that while she was burning the mattress, maybe poor Kenny fell into the fire. She said that she'd never hurt him, but didn't give a rat's furry little ass what that he was gone. Of course, the police didn't buy any of the BS and charged the peeler. She lit a bar with first-degree murder of Kenny County, and she was denied bail. She came clean to the shocked officers by admitting to the murder of Michael DeLogue before she thought of it, though, and, and <clears throat> now she faced two counts of first-degree murder. She pled not guilty by reason of insanity and was counting on her barking moon back crazy stunts to win it for. She went to trial on May 13, 2008. Her poor defense attorney, Jeffrey Denner, had a stack of psychiatric reports to show that she was a certified complete tree-climbing loon that pissed on the floor and rubbed shit in her own hair. And the psychiatrist said that she was abused herself as a child and projected her own experiences onto her victims. She was able to convince the man that they were pedophiles and then and had been victims of incest themselves. She would then get mad at them for it and kill them. Now, folks, being a bit of a seasoned citizen and all, I may be getting senile, but I don't know how in the world somebody could ever convince me that I'm a pedophile because I just plain ain't. But you notice how her attorney just glosses over that one. Like, hell, folks, it happens every day. Jurors got to hear some of the hundreds of tape recordings that the moon bat made her, of herself, where she interrogated and tortured the, quote, truth, end quote, out of her victims. A forensic psychiatrist who tested, testified for the defense said that those tapes showed that the wackadoodle has a schizophrenic and delusional disorder that makes her believe that all men are pedophiles and that she has to kill them. And she believes that once <clears throat> she once died and was sent back to Earth as an angel with special powers and a mission to kill pedophiles. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm a juror, that would sure as heck convince me that she needed to be found innocent, wouldn't it, you folks, and be released right back into society? <laughs> yeah. I'm waiting for lightning to strike because it's probably one of the biggest lies I've ever uttered in my whole entire life and my many laps around the sun. But that wasn't quite the same story the moron told the state psychiatrist. She told him that she was driven to kill Michael DeLogue because he was having sex with, with and killing her rabbits and <clears throat> had said that uh, he wanted to kill her too. She said that she had more pregnant rabbits because of him than she knew what to do with. Now... She said that they got into an argument about him knocking up her rabbits and they both ran into the house and ended up in the kitchen where he tried to make her pregnant too. So she grabbed a logging chain and threw a curb stomping on him with it and, 
he was still alive, standing there bleeding all over the place from several open head wounds caused by the master lock that was accidentally left on the chain. Then, being all filled up with mercy and all, caring, you know, like she is, and just plain piece of dog squeeze, she actually was, she tried to send the rabbit raper to the hospital, but uh, he told her he deserved to hurt because he was the most evil SOB in the world. Then he staggered over to the couch and laid down for about two freaking weeks. The whole time laying there, feeling so evil about himself that he refused to eat or drink water. Then all of a sudden, just like somebody flipped the switch, he took a turn for the worse and just died right there on the couch just after General Hospital went off. Then, in yet another interview, she said Kenny County's death was an accident. She said that she woke up one morning and he wasn't in bed, so she got up to go fix a nice cup of coffee because everybody knows that you best part of waking up is having folders in your cup now, don't we? Now, then she said she was going to go look for him and went out in the clear blue yonder and just as a hot water started trickling onto the coffee beans in her bun professional coffee maker she was he was on top of her choking the very life out of her with his bare hands she said that when she was finally able to free her neck from the death grip mr county told her that he had only come to the farm to steal all her money and to support his drug habit they continued to argue and fight until they wound up in the bathtub and then he just slipped and hit his head why it was all just an accident after all. She said that he just laid there with his eyes staring straight up and didn't move. So I started CPR. What else was I supposed to do? She said. And after all, she was certified CPR and she did the best she could, she said. Once the, she pronounced him dead, like I guess that you're certified to do when you're training CPR, she dragged him out in the yard along with the mattress and box spring and set the whole thing on fire, you know, just to give him a Native American funeral. Now, the prosecutor's psychologist testified that he believed the lunatic was sane. It, this after listening to her wax whack a doodle for about 12 hours solid, and he, she was able to answer questions and even tried to explain evidence away that made her look guilty. This is not what we see in a person who is a psychotic or has a psychiatric problem, the good doctor said. He added that he thought that she was faking the whole damn thing. And that's exactly what he said. The prosecutor told the jury that this barking moonbat knew that what the heck she was doing was wrong, and she made efforts to conceal it by destroying evidence. That crap ain't insane, he added. It's just plain sadistic. She taunted, tormented, and tortured both of them because she's a freaking warped pervert. Now, the peeler was found guilty on both counts and was, at 49 years old, sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. She got the big L-WAP. She is currently housed in the Homestead Correctional Institution in Florida City, Florida, where she maintains, uh, or remains, unpeeled. Now... Folks, I hope you got something out of our story today. For the love of Mike, if you're in a relationship where there's abuse, get out. I know it's hard sometimes, but there's resources available to aid you. Now, if you're actually in a domestic violence situation, call 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 
888-272-7233. Before it goes any further, do me a favor and do that, will you? If you like the podcast, throw us a like and a review on whatever podcatcher you're listening. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. It helps spread the word and give us more exposure. So don't forget to follow us. Now, like I said, and subscribe too. That'll let you know that you know the next episode drops. Join us on Facebook group, Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast, where we talk Appalachian or about anything else you want to bring up. And I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend, and I will see you then.